Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite Alicia Harrison to come up, and Alicia is going to read, oh, how appropriate, right? Uh, <coughs> Alicia, this is the woman who's running our school options panel, and she's also reading our scripture for us this morning. Yeah. This is from Acts 19, 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the working men in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only in this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed with her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are pro councils that there are pro consuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justifying this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, thankful that you desire to speak to us this morning and pray that you would do that. Lord, would you 
open up our minds and our hearts uh, to be soft to the word that you want to speak to us. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Flip to my notes here. Okay. It's a lot of notes. Okay, here we go. Uh, so I want to talk for a second as we get started about uh, the book, All the Light We Cannot See Again. As you guys know, you get to come with me on all of my literary journeys, so I'm just finishing this book. And one of the, th- one of the main characters kind of in the second half of the story is this older Frenchwoman named Madame Manic. And she's been living in this town kind of in northern France her entire life, as a housekeeper for this one family. And she's watched as her France and even her beloved city has been overrun by Nazis. And as time goes on and as the challenges and kind of attacks on the city mount, she decides, I'm gonna do something about this. And she signs up to join uh, the French resistance movement. And so there are all of these little ways that she's participating in kind of sabotaging the, the work of the, of the Germans around her. Like she goes out one night and she switches the street signs around. And so it kind of starts small. And yet as the story goes along, she gets invited deeper and deeper into, into plotting the overthrow of this repressive uh, government. And there's a moment where she confronts uh, the man who, who she, she works for, the guy who kind of runs the house that she's a part of. And she, she's trying to pull him in uh, to this plot, to, the, trying to pull him into the resistance. She's trying to get him to use his radio beacon to broadcast signals to the allies as they prepare uh, for the liberation of France. And he won't do it. He's terrified. His fear has kind of kept, kept him in this cocoon of his home for several decades, and he's unwilling to take any risks or to change anything about his life. And what she says to him is, wouldn't you rather be alive before you die? And you can tell she's heartbroken for this man who is so covered in fear that he has no idea of what it is to live. And so she says to him, wouldn't you rather be alive if even for a minute before you die? But she's a woman who has experienced, who's tasted the joy that comes from believing that her life matters from being a part of something, from investing in something that is bigger than herself. And because she has experienced it, she can't help but want to pull the people that she loves into it with her, even in the face of great risk. Because she's tasted the joy of what what it's like to be a part of a mission that matters. That's something that's in all of our hearts as humans, isn't it? That inside of all of us is a desire to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, to be a part of something that matters. But when we step back and we think, well, what does it mean for me to change the world? We can be so over, easily overwhelmed that we retreat into kind of the small confines of our life. Now, what is true about you is that if you are in Christ, you have been drafted into a mission that matters. And this is not Mission Impossible style. This is not your mission if, if what? 
if you should choose to accept it, right? No, you don't have a choice as to whether or not you accept the mission. It's been given to you. To be a Christian is to be brought into God's mission, his plan, his ongoing work to redeem and reconcile all of creation to himself. Being a part of that mission is who you are, who you were created to be. And you don't have to go out to find that mission. It's right in front of you. The scriptures give it to us. It's to be a part of that redeeming and reconciling work here in this world. And it's easy for us uh, to take the perspective that we've, like we've punched our ticket, right? We're headed to heaven, and so we may as well just kind of make the most of the ride. Make it as comfortable as possible as we ride it out. Or we can live uh, like, like the French gentleman enclosed in his home. Right, so racked by the fear of what happens when we get involved in something bigger than ourselves that we stay cocooned up in our own kind of very private lives. No, and all throughout this, this series, the book of Acts, God's been using it to call us as a church into something bigger, into his work that he is doing in the world to redeem and to reconcile all of creation to himself. And our passage today this may be hard for you to believe because this is a crazy passage, okay? It speaks to that very mission. It speaks to the, to the, the desire that we have in our hearts and, and what's true about our identity as Christians that, that we have been called to participate in a mission that's gonna change the world. And we see evidence of that playing out in the passage that we're in this morning. That's what this passage is, is calling us to. That we, be, that we, even as a church, like as this group of people who are here together, that because we are here worshiping God together and worshiping God here in East Nashville, that East Nashville would be different because of that. Do you believe that could be true? That our city would be a different place, that our neighborhood would be a different place because of the work God is doing in us and through us in the world around us. That is what this passage is calling us to. So we're gonna talk about that this morning. What does this passage have to speak to us about being a a community that is changing the world around us? And then we're gonna talk about uh, what does this passage teach us about what it means for Jesus to be changing us? Okay, so let's talk for a minute about what this riot in Ephesus has to do with the idea of being on mission. And you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna have to listen to me geek out for a second on the, the background history of this, okay? Because it really matters for us understanding how this is connected to mission. What is true about this, the city of Ephesus at this time, uh, Ephesus is a city in Asia, Asia Minor, so Turkey, okay? And uh, there was this massive temple to the goddess Artemis in the city of Ephesus, Scholars think it was probably 425 by 225 feet. That was like, that was the dimension of this temple. Bigger than a football field. Four times larger than the Parthenon. And our Parthenon here is only a scale mod of the original. So this is a big temple, right? Its columns were 60 feet high. It was 
perhaps the most beautiful, stunning structure in all of the ancient world. People talk about seven different wonders of the ancient world. There was uh, the essential, essentially the equivalent of the Lonely Planet tour guide kind of in the ancient world. And as he was writing about all of these monuments, he says, all those other things are great. The pyramid's magnificent. But when you come to this temple, everything else looks like child's play. And not only was this, this, this temple kind of the center of cultural and religious life in the city of Ephesus, it was also the way that the city of Ephesus made all its money. It was like the equivalent of bachelorette parties in Nashville, okay? It drove all the tourism to the city. It was a, it was a, it was a, a hotbed of religious tourism. The, the harbor in Ephesus was actually getting filled up with silt from a river, so like big trade ships couldn't come to port anymore. So what sustained and drove the economy of this city was this temple. It was everything to them. And then this guy named Paul starts monkeying around with it. Right? We talked about Paul a few weeks ago, that Paul is this guy who was persecuting Christians. He had this un well, not unbelievable, we believe it, but uh, uh, a wild conversion story. And this man who is persecuting Christians is now out proclaiming Christ to people. And he's doing it not only like in his little neighborhood, but he is going and traveling around the world talking about Jesus. And he's landed in Ephesus. At this point in the story, Paul has been in Ephesus for three years planting, planting a church. It's taken some time for it to kind of get some traction there, okay? But the church has started to grow. And what this silversmith has recognized is that the gospel threatens his livelihood. Right, that as more and more people come to trust Jesus, they're realizing that this temple uh, is nothing but a sham. Like, yes, it's beautiful, it's magnificent, but the goddess who's being worshipped here is not a goddess at all. That she has no real power in the world. So people aren't going to the temple. They're not buying the white cowboy boots that he's selling, you know, to continue the bachelorette analogy. Uh, and he sees his life and, and his welfare kind of flashing before his eyes. And so he gathers together all of the people who were in a similar kind of trade as him who all make money off of the temple and he's pulling them together saying, we gotta do something about this Paul because not only is he turning people uh, against or turning them away from Artemis here in Ephesus, he's done this around the world. So all the tourists that come here to buy stuff from us, they're not gonna come anymore. This is a big problem. These he gathered together, the workmen in similar trades. He said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you believe that? And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That the growth of the church in this city, in the city of Ephesus, is causing sweeping cultural and economic change. 
what Demetrius is saying, I, he's, he's resisting it. We've, we've got to stop it before it gets to a tipping point. And that mission, right, that kind of change that is happening in the church in Ephesus, um, that is the same change that's happening here. The same mission that, that Paul was on that was changing the very fabric of, of the life of the city, that's the same mission that Jesus is on today here in Nashville, here in East Nashville. The same mission that we are participating in. And as we are kind of wrapping up this series, uh, I just want you to, to stretch your imagination about what it means for us to be on mission in this community together. that what we would hope for, that what we would see is that our streets, the places that we live, the, the apartment complexes where we reside, that those places would be different because we are living there. That rather than being places of isolation, that we would be people who are builders of community, people who are fostering deep connection uh, with people of all kinds of different backgrounds. That's what it looks like when the gospel has changed us and is flowing out of us into the world around us. Like that our schools would be different because of our involvement in them. Yes, as parents, but also as members of this community. Like this last week, uh, we have a service committee here, and they, uh, they rented a food truck and served lunch to all of the teachers at Stratford this week, just as a way of saying thank you. Like, yes! We want to do more of that, to wrap our arms around the school and say, we are, we're for you. That the way that staff and teachers and students experience that place would be different because of the ways that we choose to, to love the people who are there. That our city would be different, that our city government would be different, that, that health care in this country would be different because of the jobs that you guys have and the way that you are taking the gospel with you out into those places of work. And this is a creative city. There are so many of you who have creative endeavors that, that our hope would be that our world, that our neighborhood would have a, a clear picture of the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God because of the ways and the things that you create and put out into the world. That this place would be more just and more righteous because of the fact that we have been called to be on mission here. But to be on mission is, is for us to be called to be a, uh, a catalyst for an epidemic of gospel transformation in our community. And that, and that hope that we have to see our world changed, and what it starts with is the spiritual mission of the church. We're talking about like the social mission and the spiritual mission. Those things go together. In fact, the, the groundwork for this change is laid in the spiritual transformation that happens in us and that happens in our community. This guy, Demetrius, he sold silver shrines, like scale models of the temple to people to take home with them, to aid them in their worship of this goddess wherever they went. And what was happening is that this worship of, of an idol, of a false god, of an untrue god or goddess was being replaced by worship of the one true god. 
And it was that change in worship that was affecting the cultural and the economic uh, fabric of the city. The people's hearts were being moved. That we are, that we are a, a church, a community that's on mission to see our world changed and influenced and shaped by the truth and the grace and the love of the gospel. And that looks like us also caring about the, the spiritual state of the people around us. That we want the people around us to be shaped by, to experience the love and the grace and the joy that comes from knowing and walking with Jesus. that those two types of, of transformation that we would see it out in our world and that we would see it in people's lives, they're deeply connected. That was the mission that this Ephesian church was called on, that that's the mission that we are called to. That it meets us in this deep and desperate need that we have to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. That really, the gospel is the only sure foundation that we have for that kind of living out in our world. I, was re- I saw this book at the bookstore the other day. It was a book for, for little kids, almost like a catechism, and it was called A is for Activist. And, and the, the premise of the book is, is wanting to raise children up into this idea of being people who are warriors for social justice out in our world. Okay. Whether or not you agree with the, with the agenda of the book itself or, or, or it's kind of a vision of change, that we can all say that what we want for the kids in our community is that they would care enough about the world to advocate for what is true and good and right. Right? Right? But what that book can't answer is what is good and true and right? And how would we know it? How would we know it when we see it? And that's what the gospel does is it gives us a solid foundation for knowing what is good and what is true, what is real, what what does love look like? Because the gospel tells us this is what God did for you. That in a, in a world where uh, you've got your truth and I've got my truth, how can I say that my truth is a truth that's, worked, that's worth uh, sacrificing for? That's worth pursuing as an agenda out in our world. That what we need is a much more solid foundation to go out into the world as people who are activists, who are actively participating in resisting the evils in the world around us. And the gospel provides us a vision and a hope and a foundation for that. And I love uh, the idea of, of that mission uh, encompassing this idea of resistance. Like if we talk about, well, like, what does the quality of that mission look like? What does it feel like? How do we experience it at times? That part of the way that we experience it is that we are a part of a resistance movement. And that often, uh, it's the small things that we do faithfully day to day that allow us, or, or, or the, that's the way that we participate in the change that we're talking about. In this story, it is not the Christians who are rioting. What the Christians are doing is living with integrity the life that God has called them to. 
day by day. And certainly, as Christians, there are times that we are called into moments where we would protest uh, in, a, in a big, demonstrative way. That can be true, yes. And alongside that, what we are called to is a faithful, day-to-day uh, resistance. Right, like we're getting close to Christmas. I don't know if you knew that. It is sneaking up on me. I was thinking about the other day. I have, well, we wouldn't have to go into that, but I was surprised to realize it's coming close, okay? Uh, and I think it's pretty easy for us to acknowledge that maybe the, the way that Christmas unfolds around us is not the most intentional or maybe not the most honoring uh, to the Savior whose birth we're celebrating, right? That the way that we tend to experience Christmas is kind of this like schmaltzy, nostalgic, Hallmark movie kind of a way. Like, oh, it just like warms my heart. Or it can be in a very materialistic kind of way. Like what are the things that I've got to get, that I've got to buy? But often I think the way that we most truly experience Christmas is just in the rush and the busyness, right? Um, would you resist that this year? Like to be thoughtful and intentional in about the ways that you are deciding to engage in this season of Advent, the season of waiting that we're coming up on. And that as you slow yourself down very intentionally, as the busyness of the world ramps up, that what you are doing is resisting. That you are participating of this mission of God in the world. That it's small, yes, but it matters. That's true as you think about going home and being with family for Thanksgiving, right? I don't know what that experience is like for you. There are times where I go home and then I realize, oh my goodness, I am acting like a teenager again. Like, where did this come from? That we get to be agents of gospel transformation uh, as we participate in holidays with our families. I'm asking God, how are you calling me to resist the system that I so easily fall back into and instead actively choose to love the people around me? Like how would I plot and strategize about the best ways to do that ahead of time? Even if the best way to do it is to maintain some of my own boundaries in that space. That's resistance. That's gospel day to day. The grind of resisting, it matters. Are you choosing to make time for, like, for this on a Sunday morning or for your small group that happens during the week? The choices that you make intentionally to be, to be a people, that we make to be a people who are not uh, driven constantly by our work but are willing to rest? That's resistance. And that what, we, what we're called to in this passage is, is the flavor of mission that, that, would, that would cause us to be uh, intentional people about the way that we're living and proclaiming Jesus to the world around us. The way that it is different than, than, the, than, the, than the French resistance, right, is that this is not a secret. Our goal, our mission, our aim, it's very visible and it's very clear that what we hope to see in ourselves and in our world is that we would be changed by the gospel. There's no hiding that. We're, that we're very forthcoming. I love that about the right here. The people are calling out very clearly what is true about Paul. Paul is saying that the, that the that, uh, idols made by hands aren't gods at all. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly what Paul is doing. There's no hiding the agenda. 
that it's right out in the open. That's, that's, the, that's the flavor of the mission of the resistance that we're called to kind of in this day-to-day life that, that we're living. Okay, but here's the catch. Um, to return to the French resistance, we're really going to drag this analogy all the way out this morning, okay? Uh, after the war... As, as some authors have kind of wryly noted, after the war, everyone was a part of the resistance, it turns out. That after the war, everyone talked about what it was like to be a part of the resistance. Uh, after the war, when there was no more cost to it. And that when, when the French resistance, I don't know how they come up with this number, but when they themselves kind of estimated how many people were involved in a country of millions of people, their estimate was 440,000. Okay. The French government's kind of uh, official estimation of how many people were involved was 220,000. If you were to ask some historians, they would say it was somewhere around 75 to 50,000. that everyone loves the idea of being a part of change that's happening out in our world. But in practice, that's a really hard thing to do. That our fear of getting involved, the priority of our comfort, are high, they're hard barriers to overcome. So we've got to ask, if we're going to be realistic, is, is what's got to happen inside of us that would make us the kind of community that would want to be engaged in seeing our community changed? What would have to happen in us for us to overcome the barriers of our own comfort and fear to be a part of this mission out in our world? And what would have to happen to us, what, what has happened, what is happening, is the same thing that happened in the lives of these people in the city of Ephesus. I mean, think about it. Uh, these people were just going about their day-to-day lives, worshiping in some way uh, the goddess that was in this temple of Artemis. I'm sure there were some of them who were super devoted and some of them who were just kind of passively acknowledging that this was here people who were going about their day-to-day lives, sacrificing, praying to, appreciating the idols that were dedicated to this goddess, hoping that as they were involved in this religion, that they were able in some way to appease or to kind of curry the favor of this deity who might choose to bless them in some way. Or if nothing else, to support this structure that was at least driving the economic prosperity of the city about them, right? And here comes this guy named Paul, and what he says to them is uh, gods who are made by human hands aren't gods at all. And that suddenly, this temple and all of its magnificence uh, is shown to be empty. Even deforming of the people in the city itself. This God that they're worshiping, this goddess they're worshiping has been shown to not be a God at all. And instead, what they encounter is the living God. The God who does not dwell in a temple made by human hands, but instead has put on flesh and has come and dwelt among us. 
that what they encountered in the message of Paul's gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit was a God who came to us and who said, I am here not to be served, but to serve. That is a God that's radically different than the goddess that they were worshiping. A God who would come and say, I'm here not, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. A God that is so full of love that what he would come and say to people is, I'm, I'm here to love you in, in the very places that you don't deserve it. That they encountered a God who said, you do not have to do anything for me to earn my love. I am freely showering that love upon you. And what that did is that changed these people's hearts. Why, why would you choose to continue to worship a goddess in an empty temple when you could worship and commune with the living God who has come among you who has said, rather than living in a temple, I'm coming to live and dwell in you now through the Holy Spirit. That is the God that the people of Ephesus started to encounter and it changed them as individual people. That is the God that we encounter, the God who is changing us because God is, he is always at work in his people, always. He promises that. That he tells us that he has come and he, he has saved us, yes, but we are in the process of being saved. The theological word for that is sanctification. That God is always at work changing his people. That if you're here and you are in Christ, what is true about you is that God has an agenda for your life and he is actively working it in you and in me even now. We're like, well, we're in church, of course, now, right? Yes, but even outside of here, every day he's doing it. He's working in you. He's working to change you. And what he says is that, he says this in Ephesians 2.10, he says, you are his workmanship, and that word for workmanship, it's, a, it's an artistic term. It's like saying you were God's poetry. That that is how God sees you. It's how he sees me. In all of our mess, and in all of our sin, and in all of the places that we are so broken, that God looks at you and God says, you are my workmanship, you're my poetry. It's like when Michelangelo uh, was, was carving the statue of David. He's got this block of stone in front of him. And the way he describes the process is he, saw, he says, I saw the angel in the marble and carved away until I set him free. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved away until I set him free. That that is what God is doing in you. That his desire is to take away all of the sin that so easily entangles us to strip it away and to set you free. He says, I created a vision of David in my head and simply carved away everything that was not David. That makes it sound very easy. It's a very challenging process, right? But that is what God is doing in you. That he's carving away all of those things that aren't you. With the desire to set you free, to pull out of you, to, to make you into the work of art that he knows that you are. 
And that can be a painful process, can't it? Have you ever experienced that in your life? When God is taking something away from you that you have learned to really love, but you're realizing is not a part of who you are? And I can tell you about all the ways God's doing that in my life right now. Carving away the shame that so easily entangles me. Talking to me about where I get my identity. What it is like to really experience um, neediness. Having a third kid is really throwing us for a loop, guys. (laughs) We are very needy. And it's possible that as God is doing that work in us, we, we have the choice of, of participating with that work or of resisting that work. That we can be like Demetrius and cause a riot about it. We'll cloak our idols in all kinds of other things. That's what Demetrius does, right? Look, guys, he is at least honest enough to acknowledge in the beginning. They're attacking our, like, our financial security, but also our city He's like calling on patriotism, all of these other things to kind of clothe the idols that he is clinging to, this idol of economic security and concern. That he would rather start a riot about it than address what's at the heart of it, which is that gods made by hands are not gods at all. Oh, and it's easy to point the finger out there, but there are so many ways that I do the same thing when God is trying to pry something out of my hands that I am dedicated to keeping. And the invitation, the call is this, well, and let's say this, that even when we do that, do you know God is still working? He doesn't just give up and walk away. That he is willing to stay with you in it and fight with you for it because of how much he loves you and because of what he is doing in your life. And then what he is inviting us to is that we would open our hands and submit, surrender, participate with him in that work that he is doing in our lives, even when it's hard to understand and especially when it's painful. The people of Ephesus, right before this story, the Christians in Ephesus, I love this story. Uh, right before this riot, what they, had, what they had done is that they had gathered together all of their spell books and lit them on fire. What? That what was true about the church in Ephesus is that these people had come to know and to trust Jesus and yet at the same time they were like practicing sorcery and not like Harry Potter making feathers like rise in the air. Like they were like doing spells and stuff in their lives. And that what God was doing is in them as a church is he was saying, don't look to those things to, to try to control your life. Look to me. Don't try to manipulate dark spiritual forces in the world. You can trust me and my love for you instead. And so what these people did is they brought the books and they said, okay, Lord, we will trust you. We'll, we will submit to that. And, and Acts tells us that those books costed about, the, like the price amounted to about 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, That's just a lot of money, okay? And rather than resell them on Facebook Marketplace, uh, they burned them. That what they were saying is we want to be free of this stuff and we want our world to be free of this stuff because God is doing a work in our heart that is costing us something. And their willingness to participate in what God was doing in in them uh, freed them then to participate in the mission that God was about in the world in a whole new way. 
And so as we as a community, as we dream and think about, as we continue to be on this mission together as a community, because listen, the book of Acts is about to end, but friends, we are still a people that are on mission in East Nashville, right? We're going to be on this mission together for a long time. And as we continue to be on that mission together in our city, that what is going to continue to happen is that God is going to use that to pry our hands off of things that, that, that are hurting us and holding us back, that he is going to be doing work in us to make us into the workmanship that he has that uh, determined before the foundation of the world. Would we as a people say yes to that? to let him change us. I'm gonna invite uh, our worship team to come, to come back up and uh, we're gonna sing about that work that God is doing in us. We're gonna sing about God's character, his goodness and his faithfulness to us because we need to be reminded of that goodness, of the love that, that he has for us, the love that has come and has dwelt among us, the love that in the midst of all of our mess sees us as pieces of art and is pursuing that even when we don't have the strength to do it ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it is, uh, it is not hard for us to believe that we are a broken people. Uh, Father, it is not hard for us to believe uh, that we worship things that aren't you all the time. Father, it is hard for us to believe that you see us as works of art. That in the midst of all of our mess and all of our sin, Lord, of all of our resistance, that you are coming after us, that you are changing us, that you are making us more and more into your image and freeing us to be the people that you've created us to be. God, we pray that as we worship you now, that you would be uh, encouraging our hearts with the reality of your goodness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.